so I am live at the moment. We're doing episode 45 of the Strength and Success Podcast. And I did say we because Riley's going to be joining me in a second. I just got to wait for her to log on. She just joined and there's my request. Oops, there we go. Go live with All right, so it should kick her in here any second here for episode 45 of the Strength and Success Podcast. There she is. Hi. Wait, sorry, go ahead. Oh. <laughs> Slightly different format. Uh, this way, Riley can actually see the questions as well and the comments when they pop up. Plus, I'm in a way more comfortable chair. That's wonderful because that little futon thing just wasn't working for me. So this is episode 45 of the Strength and Success podcast. And we're titling it Loyal to Lifting or Are You Loyal to Lifting and so forth. Um, that's all just blank there. But we do record it live every Thursday at 1.30. <laughs> and then it gets released every Monday on every podcast platform. The podcast is, of course, of course, brought to you by Culture Nutra Supplements at Culture Nutra and culturenutra.com. And the Train Heroic platform, we have the Cultivating Strength program. So if you guys need programming and not necessarily coaching, that is a good avenue for you to go to. And your first week is always free. So make sure you check that out. And I thank you all for joining. I am Trevor Jaffe. Down below me, or maybe I'm above her, I have no idea how hers looks, is Riley Prezzell. Hello. Hello. <laughs> how are you? I'm doing wonderful. Okay, good. That's a good start. All right. Episode 45, Loyal to Lifting. This is an interesting one because there seems to be an abundance of drama in powerlifting or in transports in general with different federations and different standards and different divisions and different everything. And we always talk about being supportive. And if you are a powerlifter or a strongman or a weightlifter or a crossfitter, whatever, you know, we're looking for you to be loyal to lifting. That means the process of training itself, the competition itself, and not a federation or a group or a faction or a belief system. Because as things always evolve and change, you have to adapt with it. Those are out of your control. For some people, the only federation they have within their area may not be your federation that you love or support or do things for, but it's all they have access to within a couple hundred miles. I know this because we've done seminars in the middle of nowhere and there's only one federation and the guy who owns the gym puts that federation, he brought that federation there and puts it on and there's literally nothing for 250 miles because it's all farmlands. <laughs> literally in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. Middle of nowhere, although they did have a wonderful Walmart for some reason because I guess it fed all the farmers and tractor supplies and everything that was there. That was kind of neat. It was the weirdest, like most upscale Walmart in the middle of nowhere. It was the only one. They didn't have any other options. Only one. Yeah. And it was like a giant truck stop Walmart too. So it's interesting. But we always talk about that is like the federation doesn't matter. There is good judging in bad federations and there's bad judging in supposedly great federations. We all know what the standards are and it's our job as an athlete to adhere to that standard, which means you squat below parallel. It means you pause the bar motionless on your chest if you're a wall lifter. It's a little bit different from multiply. And that you deadlift without a hitch or without straps or without soft knees, you know, or those things. You don't slam the bar down. Universally, the rules are the same. It doesn't change anything what federation you lift in. And open powerlifting will count your total, total regardless of what federation you lift in. You need to be loyal to lifting and the lifting community. When people tell people they shouldn't compete here or there because of the judging, that really is on the meet director and the person in the chair. It is subject to human error and it's out of your control. Can you turn down a lift you don't like? Sure. Do you have to? No. I mean, you, you trained, you earned. If you felt you did it to the standard of the, the, the meet and you want it, it's yours. 
doesn't matter what the internet says because you're loyal to lifting, not loyal to federation. Unless you work for a federation, that federation pays your bills, doesn't matter. They're not helping your life in any way. You pay them for the opportunity to be there. So enjoy it. And you are lifting and part of a lifting community, support each other. Yeah, this kind of, I feel like this reminds me of a question we had like maybe two episodes ago about like, where do you think powerlifting will be in like five or 10 years? Um, and my answer was, it doesn't really matter where powerlifting is in five or 10 years. Like I'm going to be there regardless. Like I'm going to compete regardless. I'm going to do whatever regardless. And like, you know, uh, even like five, 10 years ago, there were not as many federations back then as there are now. Like, you know, there was maybe one to two federations and now there's all these different ones popping up and there's all these money meets that are popping up, which is great. Like, I think that's awesome that all these meet directors are wanting to do like big money meets and actually pay powerlifting out because five, 10 years ago, like you didn't make any money off of powerlifting. Now there are people who can make 20, 30 grand from one meet winning. And like, that's really cool. Like, that's awesome. And I'm very, I think it's very cool that it's spreading the way that it is with where I am at, like in my powerlifting career journey, whatever you want to call it. Um, but I think that the, I think that the internet kind of ruins it sometimes because there's all these people talking shit about this federation and this federation and, oh, I won't do this here because I can't do this, or I'm going to go here because it's my friends and they don't like this person and whatever. It's like, that's so much unnecessary drama just to squat bench and deadlift. Like I don't, care about those things i don't care who someone doesn't like i don't care who where it's going to be at like if i want to compete somewhere i'm going to compete somewhere i find a timeline and then i choose a meet and if it works out that's how it works and i feel like that's how it should go and with all these new lifters coming into the sport they're like well what's the deal with like you know there's like usapl controversy you know like what's the deal with usapl should i not compete there and then they're like oh what about uspa oh what about the wrpm what's all this weird like drama going on here and it's that's not the important thing like that's not the thing that people should be focusing on but as newer lifters in the sport you know you're trying to figure out what's going on and you're you follow all these very uh popular accounts that are posting their opinions and their negative viewpoints and whatever and all the new power lifters are like well what do i do where do i compete compete where you want to compete like if, there, uh, if there's a meet down the road from you and you, but you saw online that someone didn't like that federation. Are you just not going to compete there because someone else doesn't like it? And it just, it's very clicky. I'm not a fan of that. <laughs> I don't think that there needs to be, we all do, we all do the one weird thing, right? Like we're all doing, we're all powerlifting, which is weird. And it's like 2% of the population, maybe that actually powerlifts, you know, like it's a very niche sport. And the fact that there are like, uh, you know, Julius Maddox benching on ESPN, like the fact that that's even happening is absolutely insane because this was, this would never happen five years ago. So the fact that we're like making it, we're almost segregating powerlifting more by creating this like toxic environment around meets and no one knows where to compete anymore. They're like, well, do I, do I go here because they're going to make good meets or do I go here because this person said it's bad. And it, that's just so, that's so overwhelming for you not for them yeah get involved in all that drama you're getting distracted from what's going to better you you're using your energy on their bullshit and that's what they want because that means you're paying attention to them it's attention seeking ways to get you to pay attention to them by creating drama i got news for you it doesn't matter if it doesn't affect you it doesn't matter to you you shouldn't even know it exists 
I'm usually like one of the last to know because I don't scroll through social media and things will go on. Like I have no idea. People ask me, I'm like, I don't know. I have to go look for it because I don't know. <laughs> and I'm happy that I don't know because it means I'm focusing on me. I'm loyal to lifting. I'm training, I'm eating, I'm recovering, I'm doing what I need to do to get better or stronger or what my clients need to get better or stronger. Yeah, you know, it's, it's our priority to always, and I don't want to make this a singular thing. When I say loyal to lifting, I'm really referring to your goal. Being loyal to you, what's going to make you happy, what's going to make you better, but most importantly, the people around you as well, make sure they're doing the same thing. Because, you know, that negative entity, that negative energy can steal from your progress. And you don't want to be a part of that. You don't want to be in someone's sewing circle where you're hearing all this gossip and doing these things. That means you're being disloyal to lifting because these same people who are trash in federations also show up in these same federations and compete in them. It's just the controversy is a hot topic. So they get attention and you're paying attention to them and they're getting something from them. So ignore the noise. Be loyal to lifting. Doesn't matter what federation you lift in. I don't care what the internet says. Open powerlifting is going to count it anyways. And that's all that matters. Yeah, if that's your main focus when choosing a meet is like, What's the drama around it right now? That's your detracting from your goal of hitting your total at the meet. So. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's overwhelming. I think so. Yep. All right, we got a question up here. I believe it's from Kyler. Tyler, if I said that right, I'm sorry if I didn't. She actually did 20 club. And um, might be a silly question, but could having the world's flattest feet affect the dynamic of things such as rooting, leg drive, et cetera? Yes and no. Uh, flat feet is kind of actually ideal to have like flappers that are just gripping the floor and down. Weak feet would be what I'd be more concerned with than flat feet because the dynamics of your arch or your foot really don't matter in terms of how well you root. The strength of your flexor hallucis longus, which is the muscle that connects to your big toe and all the way up your calf, matters more so. That means you're able to grip the floor and create that rooting effect. So between the big toe, the pinky toe, and the heel, you want to create that tripod where you're literally grabbing the floor that's how you're rooting, creating pressure or leg drive for the bench. So as long as you're able to actively press the big toe down, the pinky toe and the heel to create that pressure, you're fine. Whether you have an arch or a flat foot, doesn't matter. It's do you have an active and strong foot? And if you don't, you can strengthen the foot. Realistically, if your feet are flat, you don't necessarily have to worry about as much pronation as someone who is uh, overly arched, I guess, because a lot of people that are overly arched are going to like evert their foot more. Um, but realist, yeah, as long as your foot is strong enough and you're actually grabbing the ground, like some people think about it like the tripod or like your claws or whatever, as long as you're grabbing it, you'll have less propensity to pronate in and then you'll be a little bit more stable, knees will stay stable, whatever, travel up the chain. Yeah, a flat surface is going to be more stable than a curved or arched surface, usually uh, supporting load, except for, say, like a dome effect, like a bridge, and obviously they, they curve those to, to distribute the load, but that doesn't mean that you can't, you know, put pressure on the outside of your foot if you are more flat. If somebody has a high arch, they might need to prone it down like Riley was talking about. If somebody is flat, they might need to do a little bit more eversion and focus on the outside aspect of their foot so the knees can travel out and so forth. So there's always a balance and a rhythm to everyone's body. It's never the same because everyone's body is different. That's a good question. We have questions from both Riley's story and my story from last week, I didn't ask one again because I, we didn't get to some of the questions from last week. So we had plenty of questions to follow up to on there. So we have plenty of questions. I will put another Q&A in my story next Wednesday. And so we'll rally on Tuesday usually. Um, but you guys are also welcome to ask like Kyler just did. You're welcome to ask questions here on the live as well. We jump back and forth between them. So if you're unfamiliar with this, we ask questions on the live or answer questions on the live that people ask and answer questions that came to us in our story. What is our first question today, Riley, from the stories? Okay. 
heavy holds. Do you use them, program them, and why? Okay, so for those unfamiliar, a heavy hold is taking a super maximal load, meaning more than your actual max, and hold position statically, not actually taking through any range of motion. From a scientific perspective, now way back in the day, in the York Marble days of the 60s and 70s, they thought super maximal loads build tendon strength. Uh, not actually true. All strength training builds tendon strength, but full range of motion actually builds stronger tendons than, than non-full range of motion. But what's interesting with heavy holds is even though they don't transfer to the lift itself as far as strength, they transfer psychologically to the lifter. When you have a lifter who is thrown off psychologically by the weight, having them do heavy holds helps them develop familiarity and confidence with that load. So if anyone's ever competed and picked up a, a third attempt that they've never had on their back before and they panic and they know that feeling, it's because they've never felt it before and they're like, oh God, this is heavy. Unracking with confidence helps you that much more to own that weight. So if you were to say, aiming for a 600 pound squat and you've been doing heavy holds at 640, 650, 600 pounds isn't gonna throw you when you unrack it because you've unracked above that multiple times. It doesn't transfer over to strength it does transfer over psychologically to the lifter. Do I program them for everyone? No. Do I program for those who have a little less mental fortitude and sometimes some lack of confidence? Absolutely. <laughs> so if you see the programs, know that I know that you have a lack of confidence. Yeah, that actually, um, I have, I don't do heavy squat holds. I like heavy bench holds better. I don't necessarily see as much benefit from a heavy squat hold, but um, a heavy, bench hold I have one of my clients Shauna she's competing at the clash and she had mentioned there was a couple bench sessions where she it was getting closer to her uh higher end percentages and she mentioned that it felt so heavy in her hands and she kept missing like she would she was like I would unrack it and it felt so heavy and then she would miss because she was already psyching herself out so that next block I programmed heavy holds for her and you know start it doesn't have to be insane right like I think I started at 92.5 percent and I just progressed up five percent every single week so that way by the end of her block she was at like 107.5 percent I think and whenever it came time for her to hit a bench PR she was like I unracked it and it felt like nothing you know um and that was that feels great when you like I know that I'm going to have a good bench when I unrack it and it comes out effortlessly and it feels like nothing in my hands but the second that something feels so heavy you're automatically going to doubt it because you're like oh shit this is really heavy like I've never touched this before but for uh for Shauna she got up to the point where like I said it was up to like 107.5 percent of her max that she was holding out above her head or above her chest for like 10 seconds nothing crazy and she ended up after that block she ended up hitting i believe it was a 10 pound bench PR it might have been five but she had a bench PR and that shows that the psychological aspect of how you approach the weight definitely matters how you're going to move it yeah absolutely I agree they're they're useful but not necessary yeah yeah all right good question from Jimmy how would you differ rehab type stuff for muscular tears strains versus tendons etc uh, why that's a good question is because one's going to heal faster than another because of blood supply so if you have a muscle strain or muscle tear, hopefully, knock on wood, it's not a complete tear, it's just a partial tear, you're going to probably be able to heal that a little bit quicker than you could a tendon strain or a tendon tear. Because the blood supply to the tendon is lower than the blood supply to the muscle. So it's going to get much more nutrients in a muscle than it would in a tendon faster. So you just have to be patient. Rehab itself is the same exact thing. 
meaning that you're slowly building gradual tissue tolerance and increasing range of motion over time and not rushing the process using a discomfort or a pain scale. You know, make, you know, you have to challenge it somewhat for it to improve, but you cannot say go above a, a five, six, seven, eight, because then you're doing more damage than help. If the pain scale is a two, three, four, you're challenging it enough that you're going to help it heal and facilitate the recovery, but you're not doing more damage to it. Um, I would say there's a little bit of a sliding scale there because some people's pain scale is going to be different than others. You know, some people are big babies and some people are just brutally not honest with themselves how much something hurts because they're suppressors. And <laughs> it's me. And uh, so you have to be a little bit more self-aware of what's manageable and tolerable when you're getting there. Now, as far as a muscle tear, you're probably going to do some rehab work for it, say once a day or every other day, just get some continued blood flow to it, let it be. When it's a tendon, it probably needs more frequent dosing, micro dosing. Say, for example, uh, Jimmy strained his like patella tendon. So this is an easy one. You know, something like backwards walking on a, on a dead treadmill or sled walking is going to help because it's going to be a very limited range of motion. It's not a significant load, but he's going to push a lot of blood to the joint. He can do it for a long period of time. If it's a muscle strain, it might be looking at three sets of 20 with a very light load. A tendon strain, you're going to be looking at minutes of time under tension. So backwards sled, backwards uh, treadmill walking or backwards sled walking might be something he has to do for five to 10 minutes versus three times 20 because you really need to get circulation going through there or even riding a bike with very low resistance to get that circulating through there. You have to drive much more blood flow to the area to heal a tendon than you would a, a muscle. The rehab itself is the same. The loading and time under tension is different. Well, and with, correct me if I'm wrong, but with a tendon, you would have to focus more on stability with yep. like, where, whereas like a muscle tear may not necessarily, I mean, unless it's like a full rupture and you, um, you don't have that muscle anymore, you're going to have to work on stability. But if it's like a muscle belly tear or like a small tear, um, getting blood flow to it is going to help it heal. But with a tendon rupture, you're going, you lost that stability, like in your knee, your ankle, shoulder, whatever, like you lost that stability. So now you're going to have to rebuild that back up. So the main uh, focus of rehab for that tendon strain uh, rupture or anything is going to be primarily focused on stability, not necessarily just blood flow, like a muscle. Absolutely. So, you know, some single leg stuff, like it might be single leg wall sits or single leg reaches where you're standing on one leg and reaching with the other leg in different directions, planes of motion is what Riley's talking about. So like if we're training a muscle, you might just be training it for its muscle action. If you're training a tendon, you probably have to go into all three planes of motion to make sure that joint itself is stable and to low load. So that's a, that's a valid point. Yeah. Uh, okay, so when programming numbers for a meet, I'm assuming ranges, openers, that kind of thing, what are you going off of? I will use two different systems. Um, I, I keep the same outline for gen generally everyone. But if it's been a long time since someone's competed, they've made a lot of gym progress, and they're trending numbers well above where their maxes are, I'll probably take their third attempt goal and use 90% of that as, say, an opener and then cut it in half to like 95% of that in the range of, of the third. If they haven't been training for a very long time, like some, most people do two or three weeks a year, so it's been short distance between, and they're not showing like astronomically above their, their maxes, I'll probably have them start at 91 to 92% of their actual max, jump somewhere between like 96 and 98% for the second to start building the total. And then the third will range somewhere from 100 to 105%, depending on the lift. Bench is usually smaller, 100 to 102.5%, so forth. Greg likes to use that system as well, because you're not going to see the giant jumps on bench that you would on, on deadlifts or squats and so forth, and go from that range. Um, 
he uses a system which I really like as well, where they have a testing week, two weeks out. I like that they test during fatigue, and then you take you take ninety percent. I'm sorry, ninety two point five percent of the top number you hit in the gym while you were fatigued as your opener. You jump to the next number, which is like seven and a half percent up that you actually hit the gym. That becomes your second, and then you jump anywhere from two and a half to five percent for a third from there. Two and a half only for bench, up to five percent for squat or deadlift, and take it from there. And they do very very well. Uh, I do I, I do like that for more novice to intermediate. I don't like that for an advanced athlete because some of your advanced athletes aren't going to recover in nine days from that max deadlift. So usually I'll put that max deadlift a little, like a little bit further out. If someone's competing in sleeves and they're a really strong deadlifter, you know, 700 plus, I'm having them take their heaviest deadlift three weeks out. If they're competing in wraps, I'll flip it where I have them take their heaviest squat because it's going to be more than the deadlift three weeks out and then opener and then their deadlift is that week and so forth. So, you know, knowing when to take those lifts also matter. It depends upon what type of lift that you're working with. If you're working with a female who's going to pull around 330, she can recover from that deadlift taking it nine days, eight, nine days out. Um, somebody who pulls eight, 900 pounds probably won't recover unless they're an outlier from that, you know, that close to a meet because it's taking a lot of their system and so forth. So it's just something to look at is when does someone recover by? And if you're working with an athlete for a while, you start to figure that out, what lifts tax them the most and pretty much everybody recovers from bench press without any problem because <laughs> it's the lowest load lift. It's not that demanding, which is weird because science shows that all three have the same effect on the body, but sometimes this could be psychological. You know, you really might have to amp yourself up for your heaviest possible squat, but don't have to amp yourself up very much for your heaviest possible bench press. So sometimes it's the psychological effect that causes more catecholamines and, and um, adrenaline response in the body, so more so than the lift, because the science is showing the recovery aspect is relatively the same, but experience-wise, anecdotally, athletes I work with would show you something very, very, very different. For me, I know it takes about two and a half to three weeks to recover from an 800-pound deadlift before I can do it again in the meet. If I took 800 pounds too close to the meet, I'm not gonna do it. For example, that I think the heaviest I took before surge was two and a half weeks out. I think I took 781 and pulled 10 in the meet. Um, the surge before that, I pulled 815 in the gym three weeks out and only had 804 on meet day. So it showed you the heavier death that took more out of me than the lighter one. And it's funny because we were just talking about my deadlift and how we actually think we peaked my deadlift too early. So right. I recover a little bit faster, um, heavier deadlifts than Trevor does. So realistically, I think we took my heaviest deadlift uh, out. So now for this next one, we're going to probably take it two weeks out and see how that goes. But it was just, we peaked it too early. Um, I'm very, when I program numbers for me, I'm very similar to what Trevor is. Um, Three weeks out standard is the deadlift. Uh, two weeks out would be squat and bench, unless that person has a heavier squat than they do a deadlift, um, such as someone who's like in wraps. If their squat is exceeding their deadlift, I'm probably going to do the squat first and then deadlift and bench at two weeks out. Um, and then for like ranges, we've talked about it before. I have like aggressive, moderate, and average attempts to give on meet day for lifters. Like I give them a. Trevor gives a range, but I actually physically like write out aggressive, moderate, average. So that way I can let them know, hey, these, this is how, if this is how you're feeling, like if you are feeling aggressive and you are feeling strong, whatever, take those numbers. Um, it goes more off a of feel that way. But I generally range those off of the last heavy attempt they have. So whatever their last heavy is, somewhere within that range of like 
97% of that lift is what I'll take for a second. So their opener would be around 90 to 92%. Their second attempt would be somewhere between like, depending on the lifter, 95 to 100% of their last heavy lift. And then their third attempt would be 100 to 105% um, of their last heavy lift in the gym. So that way it's more accurate. Um, with newer, since I work with more beginner intermediate level lifters, I tend to not take their third attempt goals because sometimes people are a little bit unaware of how far off their goal could be. You know, if you're feeling really good and you're saying that your goal is 40 pounds more than you're projecting, that's hard for me to get you to realize that without killing your confidence. So I always let the lifter know like, hey, whatever we hit as your last heavy attempt, that will dictate how I call your seconds and your thirds. Um, I like everyone to kind of put themselves in a good position with their seconds to either match or to like to match their previous total and then with their thirds to add on. Um, or if things are going absolutely exceptionally well and they're just blowing their old numbers out of the water, we can take a small PR with their second and then whatever on their third is just extra cushion to their total. So it really depends on the lifter kind of psychologically where they're at and also their experience level. Um, but like Trevor mentioned, the more that you work with a client, the more meat preps you go through with a client, the more you're going to understand how they fatigue and like what they need and what is there on bench day. Um, or on bench day, on meat day. Sometimes bench seems to be the one thing that for majority of people, their last heavy bench seems to be just about all they can get on meat day. I don't know why that is with some of the lifters that I work with, but if like, if their last heavy bench was 135, I can pretty much expect like the 137 and that's about it. Some people recover really, really well and they'll hit like the 143 range. Um, or if you're me, you hit every single bench and comp and that's the only <laughs> hit, <laughs> whatever. But it, uh, it comes down to, it gets your attempt selections and your numbers get better the more that you, they get more accurate and better for the lifter the more that you work with the lifter. Absolutely. And, you know, it, while we're talking about attempt selection, open light. Oh, yeah. The room moves. You're not used to the rules, the federation, nerves, whatever. If you think your opener is going to impress anyone, it's not. It's what you finish with that impresses people. And it's if you go eight for nine, nine for nine, that impresses people and usually gives you your best performance. If you open so heavy and you have nowhere to go and you screw up your opener and you miss it and your whole day is shot from there because your attitude changes and your mood changes and you're like, I'm all playing with the shit. Open light. Um, I've seen some of the top lifters in the world open 100 pounds below what they're taking for their third. They'll just jump 55 pounds, whatever, to it. It's, it's an ego thing when people want to open heavy or they're like, I'm opening at a new max. No one freaking cares. It's your last warm up. It's just on the platform. Open light. Yep. We got about spoto presses up here. Let me go back to that. If we're working on pausing all of our bench reps, why would we do spoto press? What is the reason they are normally proto for? Okay. So if you're unfamiliar with the spoto press, it is named after Eric Spoto, who used to be the world record holder for the raw bench press. I believe it was 722 or 721 at the time. And he's a big muscular dude. Came from bodybuilding. And he actually couldn't touch his chest unless the weight was heavy enough because he was so muscle-bound and tight as I'm accidentally flexing my pecs and I'm visualizing Eric Spoda. But he would weight down to about a half inch to one inch off of his chest and not touch until the weights got heavier. And it keeps constant tension on the muscle because a lot of people will sink or lose tension or lose tightness. He would actually momentarily pause there though. So it's a misnomer that it's just not touching your chest. It's coming down and having a momentary pause. 
to keep tension. That's what's known as the spoto press. You should be coming to a complete stop before coming back up. You don't have to do a comp length pause, but you do need to come to that complete stop before reversing back up. And it is teaching you tension and pec strength without relying on the leg drive or getting loose or sloppy in the bottom. So it is a position builder to build tension in the bottom and control of the weight. It is an excellent variation to do, but it's so often misunderstood. Also, um, I feel like majority of the time when someone has a quote unquote weakness or an area of opportunity to improve, um, you know, you're doing the thing and you're going directly to where the weakness is to attack that, right? So if in the bench press, your triceps are weak, everyone's like, oh, I'm just going to two board all the time and close grip all the time. And it's not wrong. Those are all fine things. But generally, I, I feel in order to improve a weakness you, with, especially with bench, you kind of have to start a little bit below that. So with the Spoto press, if you're pausing it like one to two inches off your chest, one that takes a lot of control, like Trevor mentioned, a lot of control and tension to stop that before it gets to your chest. And then you have to concentrically drive that up. And that's a lot of triceps. That's going to help you improve your tricep strength to lock out. Um, a lot of people have a, better time pausing off the chest like unless your chest is massively weak you generally have a better time pausing off of the chest because you can use your whole body to concentrically drive up and you get a lot of leg drive off of that with a spoto you're kind of limited on how much reflex or like muscle reflex and stretch rebound that you're getting off of the chest so i like i generally like spotos for people that have a weaker lockout because it teaches them to drive through the part that starts to get sticky before it actually hits the lockout. If you're just training the lockout, you're going to get really, really good at the lockout, but what about the transition to the lockout? So that's why I find the Spoto press to be beneficial. Um, and majority of people don't have great control to the chest anyways. So forcing them to control to that stop one inch off the chest is uh, really beneficial for bench press, especially like, uh, you're 100% right because the lockout issue isn't a single muscle issue. In powerlifting, we're looking at things from the level of integration. And that's what Riley's driving home here is you can two board to the cows come home with, and you'll get better at two board, but you may not get better at bench press because where you're losing it is that transition coming from the stability of the bottom to the top. Same as deadlift. Like if you're missing lockout, chances are you have a poor start. So it's really important to look beyond and realize why. And like what's what Riley's driving home is the transition point is where you're losing stability and power get stronger in the transition point. Phenomenal point. Thank you. <laughs> what do we got next? Uh, ever dealt with gallbladder issues or clients with gallbladder issues? No, no. <laughs> uh, yes, it's a digestive issue. If you have gallbladder issues, you might be struggling to make bile or producing bile. I don't want to go too medical here because I'm not a doctor. I will just play one in the bedroom. But if you are having digestive issues, you might want to speak to your doctor about digestive health. And that could be digestive enzymes, probiotics, or in the worst case scenario, you have gallbladder disease that might need to remove it and so forth. And it might be changing your diet structure because there are going to be things that irritate you more that are harder for you to digest. And you might need to focus on an elimination diet to find out what those are. Because if your body is struggling to break foods down and digest them, then your energy levels are going to suffer, your mood's going to suffer, and your performance is going to suffer. So sometimes you see those weird specialty diets, you think, oh, that's a bunch of quackery. Well, if you have something like gallbladder issues, that's like brilliant for you because you're identifying what's triggering your body to suffer. So 
find out what's causing these gallbladder issues and triggering it. It might be a certain food stuff, uh, thing. It could be a lack of hydrochloric acid in your stomach. So just taking basic digestive enzymes might help you. Or, you know, if it's even more medical necessary, refer to your doctor about it or try the elimination diet and see if you physically perform better because you've eliminated the things that are causing irritation in your stomach. Yeah, it doesn't feel good to uh, lift with an upset stomach or lift with digestive issues. Like that just does not feel good. Um, but that's definitely, I've never specifically had a client that had gallbladder issues, but I do have a client who we're not really sure. Uh, she sees a, she sees a specialist, like a gas, gastroenterologist um, for her issues. And it's actually, she's not able to wear a belt because she has so much like severe distress in her gastrointestinal tract that wearing a belt is like, inhibiting her with lifting and it causes her actual physical pain for multiple days. Um, we're not really sure what it is, but she keeps going back to a clinician who is, um, you know, specialized in this field because that's what he's good at. I'm not just going to tell her how to fix this. Cause I don't know. That's not my specialty. Um, I work around whatever they are telling me that she can or cannot do, which right now we're not able to wear a belt and we have to be very careful about, um, not going into too much flexion and that's what because that's what's pushing on her spine and like all of the um, her gastrointestinal tract like it's very complex but that's not something that I know how to recommend what to get what to improve it with so if that's something that is affecting your day-to-day -day life you have to go see a clinician or someone who specializes in that and I, I did have a friend who had severe digestive issues that would cause him to have AFib arterial fibrillation. So it's definitely something you want to get checked out thoroughly and work through with an elimination diet and so forth to improve your gut health. I mean, everything comes from our gut health. We, we overlook it and don't think anything of it, but really that's the basis of our immune system. So the gut bacteria. So best thing I can say is try digestive enzymes, probiotics, and an elimination diet. When you can identify what the triggers are, you'll probably feel better. Yep. Okay. Thoughts and strategies when strength takes a big hit in prep, building back up confidence and such. Okay, strength never takes a big hit in prep. I want to be clear on that. You didn't all of a sudden lose 10% of your strength. It didn't just freaking disappear out of nowhere. What you did, though, is you probably stressed yourself out, under-recovered, overworked, and all this cortisol and fatigue is making it impossible for you to show how strong you are. Anyone who's ever had, like, a child and you're out for three or four straight nights straight with a sick child and tries to go to the gym and tries to lift and realizes that there's nothing there because you haven't recovered can verify this. You didn't just get weaker out of nowhere. Like, you didn't go from hitting PRs to, you know, all of a sudden I lost 100 pounds on my squat. You got tired emotionally or mentally. It's going to affect you physically. So that's one of those things where you have to look at the choices you're making in life and the lifestyle you're living. Is it conducive to your best possible meet and outcome? Because you are in peak, you are in prep, you're not going to change that. You have to change around and modify your life to deal with that. So it means bed earlier, better food, more breathing practice, relaxation, meditation, whatever you got to do, calming music. Find ways to de-stress your body and declutter your life. That might, tell, that might mean telling people, hey, I'm a little preoccupied right now. I will get back to you after this meet because what you want is important and it matters to me. But right now I have to focus on my needs and my wants and that's this and we'll come back to this later, which is something people are afraid to do. They're afraid to tell people that they can't handle something right now or deal with something right now. And if those people are actually close to you, they'll understand. They will understand that this is a big goal or big thing for you and that if it's not an emergency, they can hold off and wait. Also, 
major I mean, like I know that we all have friends who don't power lift, but like if your friends power lift and they're like still not understanding of it, you need new friends. Um, because they, <laughs> they also prop I mean they power lift too. They know I do the blunt one. I like this. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, like, if they power lift too, like, they know what it takes to be in prep and, like, they're, I don't want to call your friends selfish, you know, because I don't know them or whatever. But, like, if your friend is a power lifter as well and they are making you feel bad about you prioritizing your prep, that's stupid because they would do the same thing. So, but I digress to that. Um, the problem with stress and, like, falling off the wagon is that generally it all compounds and it starts with it's a domino effect right so it starts with one thing so that one stressor could be work right so you're uh over overworked at work and you're doing more than you're supposed to and that causes you to lose sleep because you're working too much and then when you lose sleep um your appetite gets messed up and then you're not eating as much and then you're not hydrating as much and it just keeps compounding so it generally starts from one specific source like trevor mentioned you're not you didn't just all of a sudden get weaker. Like you're still the same strength level. You're just making poor choices for yourself and not allowing yourself to make progress. You are literally not allowing yourself to make progress. Um, sacrifice. You got to get rid of some things or put them off until later. Yeah. And so if you can identify the one specific stressor that actually triggered this whole response of not feeling confident, and if you can correct that, all the other things will get corrected as well. Um, like when I get stressed out about something, the first thing that goes for me is appetite. So I know that if I can control keeping my nutrition on track, I know that everything else will stay on track too. Because if my nutrition is on track, my hydration is going to be pretty good. My sleep's going to stay good. But if I start not eating, then I'm not going to hydrate. And then I'm probably not going to sleep because everything feels off and then I just, you just feel bad. You know, like when everything starts compounding and changing and getting worse, you just start feeling bad. And then you're like, well, fuck it. What's the point? I'm just not going to do any of this anyways. And that's when, that's when all the confidence goes. And that's when all your quote unquote strength goes is when you just say, well, fuck it. My hands are, my hands are tied. I can't do anything to change this. Um, so identifying the root cause of what is actually triggering your strength decline, quote unquote, will really help you to get your confidence back because you're, it's not only identifying the issue, but you're taking accountability for the fact that you fell apart. And majority of people don't want to take accountability because that means that you had to admit that you were wrong. No one likes being wrong. Um, but if you take accountability for what it is that you could be doing better or what you could improve on, then ultimately you will get better and you will improve because you took action and you owned it. Jim Rohn used to say, I'm going to paraphrase a little bit, but Jim Rohn used to say, you probably don't have problems. You have poor self-control because it's all, control your outcome, your life, and your choices. So he used to say that often. You don't likely have problems, you likely have poor self-control. And that's the reality of it, is a lot of these, these stressors are self-imposed choices that we've made, and then we have to deal with the consequences of them. Yep. Okay, so this is a question on there from Isaiah. Hey, Trevor, you guys, um, Trevor, you recently went through a lean-out phase. Did you lose a ton of strength? Can you talk about your journey a little bit? Sure, no, I lost zero strength. Um, I was training to drop down to 181 and attempt the all-time open full power world record for deadlift, which at the time was 797.5 from John Hack. Um, I pulled 793 beltless. So my strength was great until I had the little injury setback in my operator externus 
everything was trending really, really well. It's a very frustrating injury because it doesn't hurt on a day-to-day -day basis. It only hurts when I get to a certain pattern or position load. It hurts when I try to externally rotate my hip and hip extend at the same time, like coming out of the bottom of a squat or sumo deadlift and so forth. I can conventional light to some degree and it doesn't bother me so much there, but there's no point in pushing that. Um, the thing is with lean out phases, as you, as you put it, is it should be done moderate, slow and moderate. When people try to lean out too fast because their sole goal is to see the scale number go down, that's when they lose strength because they're plummeting by crash dieting. I do not crash diet. I create a slow, methodical, caloric deficit that goes down. Um, usually I actually eat right around baseline calories and my activity level carries me under that slightly. I make sure to meet my protein requirements. I slowly trickle down carbohydrates as needs decrease and fat stay pretty consistent around 60, 65 grams a day at that point. I tend to eat pretty low fat uh, to get as much food volume as possible between carbohydrates and, and the protein stays like right around 205. I've gone up and down in weight class over and over and over again without fail, without problem. The only lift that really takes a little bit of a hit as I get uh, leaner for 181 is bench, which is not my best lift anyways, but it takes a hit because the range of motion increases as my torso gets smaller. <laughs> that doesn't really help me, but um, I followed the RP diet for years. I'm actually in the original RP book. It's one of the transformations. It was like an 11 pound swing that over eight weeks, it's very slow and methodical. You can use the RP app. You can just put code Jack in there. It automatically saves you like 15% or something like that. It's super inexpensive to learn how to track and count your macros and do things. Um, the RP app will tell you how many calories you should have. It will carb cycle for you based off your goals. If you are not losing, it will adjust. If you're gaining, it will adjust and so forth. It's done on a weekly basis for you. And it's literally like 13 or $14 a month. It's stupid not to have it, not to use it. It's very easy to follow. That's what Riley tends to use nowadays most of the time anyways is the RP app to do her tracking for her nutrition for 148 and so forth. It's really, really easy. It's not difficult. The only time someone will lose significant strength is if they've lost significant body weight. For example, that Riley went from being a 181 competitor who weighed about 183, 184 pounds down to a 148 competitor and lost about 30 plus pounds of body weight. Now, she didn't actually lose a significant amount of strength, but her leverages threw everything off incredibly. She was able to pull 480 conventional as a 183 pounder, but ended up stronger in sumo because she was closer to the bar and had less body mass and pulled 485 as a 148er. So, but the leverages changed dramatically. The bench range of motion increased by like a full inch. Um, there was no more, you know, thick mass in the bar. Riley has a really small waist if you've never noticed. She's like a Coke bottle. And there was no more mass in the bar for squats. So it really was dependent upon what her upper back strength was and so forth. As your, as your leverages change, you start to identify where you're really strong or where you're really weak. Being a, no offense to anyone, but being a 242, 275, 308 lifter, that mass really helps you lever under the bar and not necessarily have to worry so much about bracing like a smaller lifter would or technique like a smaller lifter would to create rooting and leverage because you have mass that you can, you can balance the bar off of. The smaller lifter really has to become much more technical, much more efficient, and much more aware of their torso position because that's where it's going to go wrong because they have less mass under the same size barbell. That squat bar is seven and a half feet long, and the more narrow and small compact you get, the more width you have to create on your own. When you were wider, it's automatically balanced in there for you and so forth. You know, it's like if you take a, a plate and put it on a thimble, it doesn't have a lot of stability. But if you take a plate and put it on a smaller plate, it has a ton of stability because the plate is wider underneath it. You have to look from that aspect. If you're dieting well and using proper nutrition structure and strategy, you aren't going to lose significant strength. 
over time, if you've lost a significant amount of body mass, that is going to be harder for you to move as much weight because you don't have as much stability under the bar. But that's something you can learn to get back and create over time. It took Riley two years, but she's stronger now as a 148er than she was as a 181. Yeah, I think we just talked about this the other day, or I said something to you the other day about how I don't necessarily feel like I got quote unquote weaker, but I definitely did have to learn how to be more technical and how to leverage myself. Um, the squat is what took the, the squat is honestly what took the biggest hit. And that's because I didn't have, I've never, never been big in the midsection. Like, I'm not saying that I had like a bowling ball, you know, like size midsection or whatever. Like I've always been relatively small, but for me, when I lose 30 pounds, 20 of that came from my waist. Like, and that's, you know, and like, that's, that's all the stability that I needed under the bar. So the squat for me took the biggest hit because I had to figure out a new leverage of, okay, I don't necessarily have that sort of stability underneath the bar anymore. How am I going to stand back up with as like my legs are so strong. My legs are always the ones that can handle whatever it is that is programmed for me, but it's my upper back that doesn't always hold the weight. And when I was heavier, I didn't have to worry about that because I had a little bit more bounce out of the hole. So I kind of got myself past the sticking point that I currently have. Um, deadlift was just weird because I couldn't conventional anymore. You know, like we switched to sumo after I lost all the weight because trying to get myself and my mass behind the bar, it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough to move the numbers that I was using before. And then when we went to sumo, it was a relatively easy transition. Like, I mean, it took me, it's taking me basically up until now. So two years to get my technique down right and we're figuring it out um but it did take time and like bench the only thing that got better was i actually got a better arch losing weight um so my arch is much better now than it was before but even now like with my arch i still have more range of motion than previously so like lots of things have changed with my bench like my grip has changed my feet have changed like we've tried so many different things um but it wasn't necessarily that i got weaker losing weight it was that i just had to adjust my leverages and technique to match the body that i have now great question by edward blair uh, i'd like to go into this one real quick and does aggressive weight cuts lead to dried out joints and muscles losing the water through the method of water loading and sweating not so much as losing it through medication i'll, I'll be gentle there if you're using diuretics, they can continue on with, depending on their half-life and still cause your body to excrete water. If you're using certain things like anti-estrogens, they are known to dry out your joints and your tendons and can increase the risk factor for tearing. Um, my first hamstring tear, learned this the hard way. I use testosterone replacement therapy and it does have an anti-estrogen with me. And because I was competing in a super total meet, I needed to weigh under 207, and I actually was, and stupidly enough, still took, like, my anti-estrogen the day before, and my hamstring popped at the end of the day when I was dehydrated because I ran out of water, and that was that. Um, it may have contributed, I don't know, but I've always looked at it that way, like, I didn't need to take that, why did I? Uh, but I do know that a lot of people who have used heavy doses of anti-estrogens because of side effects of PEDs have increased risk factors for muscle tears and tendon tears because of the anti-estrogens. Stan Erfurting has an entire video on that talking about the increased risk factors of tears and tendons and, and muscles because of aggressive use of anti-estrogens and so forth because they do dry out the body. So you need to be very, very careful. If you are going to cut significant weight, one, be familiar with how. 
Two, make sure that you've put everything back on and then some. Then some is really, really important. There's a video up on the Culture Nature page and I've also shared it on mine that talks about how to recomp because when you recomp, you aren't just losing water, you're also excreting a lot of very important electrolytes and, and minerals from your systems, which are responsible for muscle contraction. And if you don't replenish those, then yes, your joints and tendons are still going to be dehydrated even though you put every pound back on. If you haven't replenished the micros, the macros don't matter as much either. So you have to make sure that everything that could have possibly be lost from your body is replenished. And you want to make sure you're not using things that would keep your body excreting fluid and creating water because it is a hormone fluctuation when you're doing a water load and sodium manipulation and so forth. And if you don't master that process, you are increasing your risk factor. I, I won't call any names out individually, but I do know several uh, powerlifters personally who've used things like diuretics unwisely and didn't quite understand the half-life of them and were still suffering. Um, best case scenario, they just suffer, suffer with grip because their hands swell up and they can't grip a barbell. Worst case scenario, there are tears in competition. It does happen. So it's one of those things that you really want to thoroughly understand the risk versus the reward. Edward Blair is someone who's competed and broke the all-time full power world bench record at 220. So the risk is worth the reward for him. If you're trying to win like, you know, Mr. Kentucky Submaster 35 state record, that risk ain't worth it for you, bro. It's not an important thing enough for you to cut 20 pounds and use diuretics and do dumb shit. You have to just really take into consideration. My rule for people is always, if you're not looking to break a record or getting into the top 20, you don't belong with an aggressive cut. You're not ready for it, you're not strong enough, it doesn't matter. If you can't make the weight with a very little manipulation of just water, and like literally like three or four pounds, like two, three percent off, you shouldn't be cutting it all because you're doing more harm than good. Yeah, we always talk about how the more important thing than the cut is the recomp. Um, the cutting is, I don't wanna say it's the easy part, but it is the easy part, and it's the one that's less likely to mess up or mess you up long-term. Um, so if you're cutting weight and you're doing a massive water cut or whatever it is, that's fine. That's your choice, whatever. But you have to replenish all of that. So plus, like you, like, like Trevor mentioned, plus some. So if you're cutting 15 pounds, like you, you're supposed to be essentially putting those 15 pounds back on plus a little bit more because then your electrolyte balance is all out and your hormone balance is all off. So you have to hydrate. You have to put the electrolytes back in thermo tabs. You have to eat, um, that was one thing that I kind of messed up with my showdown cut was the cut was the easy part. I weighed in at 145 flat. Um, the hard part was that I did not have enough fluids. I ate enough food. I had lots of carbs. I was snacking throughout the whole day, whatever. I just did not replace my electrolytes with water and sodium and all the potassium and all that stuff. I did not. That's where I fell short. And um, luckily I didn't, I didn't walk away with any injuries, but I just walked away with not the greatest performance that I could have had because I wasn't replenished. I had, once again, no mass under the bar. Like both Trevor and I felt like we had no frame under the bar, basically. <laughs> uh, <laughs> my opening spot, how does it feel? Like, I feel small. <laughs> and so, then first of that surge where I bloated anyways, even though I didn't cut a pound, I'm like, I'm too fat. <laughs> I was like, do we need to take out your belt? <laughs> Um, so it, uh, it, it's more oh. people may not know this, but there's badges you can buy on here. I've never pushed it. There's a button for me to push for badges that people can buy on here to support the podcast. And Depth Before Dishonor just bought one of the badges to support. So thank you, Jared. I appreciate that. Who's talking about my traps? Okay, but we can talk about Riley's traps. Like, two... trap, like two porterhouse steaks. 
He does a lot of shrugs and upright rows before the podcast. Don't be fooled. Okay, it's actually really funny because I did, I did have upright rows. You program upright rows for me right now. <laughs> so, yes, I did. <laughs> um, but, yeah, uh, long story short, basically, it doesn't matter how much you cut. It's how you recomp after that. Yep, absolutely. All right, what do we got question-wise? Let's do another question. Okay, uh, what's on your supplement menu? Oh, okay, cool. My first, I have too many. I won't lie about this. Everybody laughs when they come to my house. My first priority is my health. I'm super health conscious and concerned uh, with my health all the time. So the first thing I take is the Colchinucha Nutra multivitamin. Every time the Colchinucha Nutra multivitamin, I have the Colchinucha Nutra um, uh, essential fatty acid. I take that with breakfast in the morning. I have taurine in there because it's part of hydration. So I take two grams of taurine with breakfast in the morning. I will take a lion's mane because I do my work in the morning. That's good for brain. It's also, it stays with the endurance of training. So that's in there. It's a herb. Um, I will usually have, I'm trying to think what else in my morning pills, uh, potassium. I have extra potassium that's also in there that I take. Uh, what am I also missing there for the morning pills? Um, oh, I don't eat any green vegetables, which is one of the reasons why I love supplements so much. Although I do have our greens. I have half a scoop of our greens mixed in with my intra-workout drinks, so the greens are in there. So I take fiber pills with three of my meals. I take fiber pills with breakfast, my lunch, and my dinner, or actually my like second lunch. But I take fiber pills with my second lunch and second breakfast. <laughs> because I don't eat any vegetables, I don't get a significant amount of fiber in my diet outside of like a Quest bar here and there. So I add the extra fiber in there for the morning pills and vitamin D load up on vitamin D. That's one that if we do add more health supplements to culture, it'll probably be something like vitamin D down the line and so forth and do that. Um, nighttime before bed, I load up on the magnesium glycinate. Um, the good night has melatonin and lemon balm in there. That's in there as well. Pre-workout, I have the joint support in there for I take my pre-workout pills. And the turmeric I also take with breakfast. The turmeric I take with breakfast, so that's in there too as far as that. Um, the greens I mentioned, I take in my intro workout. So most of mine are health-based. I have the creatine mixed in with my intro as well. So I have creatine and the greens mixed in with my intro. It has like a half scoop that I also put in there of whey protein that's in there. So I put in like 15 grams, 20, 12 to 15 grams of protein in my intro workout and sodium and carbs are in there. Um, but generally my biggest priority is health because I feel like if I feel unhealthy, I don't perform well. I don't use a lot of sports performance supplements outside of our pre-workout, which is, I prefer the Hype 2.0 to the Hype 1. Um, every now and again for like an upper day, because it's more of a pump day, I do take the Hype 1 because it has more citrulline in there. But I usually will use the Hype 2.0 because of the higher caffeine content and that freaking tastes delicious. So I use that more often. But my priorities are almost always health-related, more so than performance-related, because the performance is going to come from better sleep, better food, and not overtraining. You also, I don't think you mentioned pro, you do a probiotic and um, multi-mineral. Yep, the probiotic I take with breakfast. The, um, the I split our men's multi, so I take one with breakfast, one with dinner. But post-training, because I train in the garage and oftentimes I will heavily sweat in there, especially during Florida summer months, I add an extra, it's just a straight multi-mineral, it's not a multivitamin, so I add extra minerals because I tend to lose a lot of minerals on a heavy sweater when it comes to the summertime. And uh, I like to replenish that because like we talked about with the weight cut for Edward Blair, that's something people really miss out on is replenishing those micronutrients after they've sweated out a lot and lost it. And that really affects everything from immune system to mood and performance. You know, if you're deficient on magnesium, that's 300 different enzymatic conversions in your body that are missing out because you don't have enough magnesium. Yeah. Uh, I think I use, I use pretty much everything. Uh, all max Cytogreens, great product. Try ours. It's better. Try the yeah. cool 
It tastes way better. I tried the Cytomax ones. It tastes like shit. Um, I use pretty much everything from Culture's Health supplements. The only things that I don't use uh, consistently would be like the joint support and the turmeric. But I think I'm going to start possibly taking the turmeric. Um, so I use old like me. <laughs> um, I use the women's multivitamin. I use probiotic, the omegas, um, the magnesium, the good night for sleep. I take creatine. Um, I don't use the greens every single day, but I do every couple times a week. And then I don't use pre-workout. I will drink an energy drink, but pre-workout and I do not mix that well. But if I do take it, I use the hype like half a scoop. Drink like a half an energy drink. <laughs> <laughs> a half of an energy drink so that way Trevor can have half of an energy drink. <laughs> Intolerance between us, yeah. Yeah. Um, and then like vitamin D, stuff like that, like multi-mineral, all those things. Um, I much prefer, I much care, I care more about the health supplements also than the sports supplements. The only thing that I make sure to be a priority from like the sports side would be um, creatine. And then sometimes I'll use protein powder if I'm not getting enough from my food. But generally I get enough from my food. That way I don't have to supplement with a powder. Yeah, I mean, I, I go through phases where I would literally just make oatmeal with extra water let it sit a little bit and throw the protein on top of that and mix it together. I actually got that from my ex, Lisa. That was a big thing she did. It's like a good snack. So vanilla protein on top of oatmeal with a bunch of cinnamon where I actually have the um, cinnamon toast crunch cinnamon dust. Mm. <laughs> it's a good one. All right. So I think that's pretty much it. It's, it's just about two 30. So that's our hour. Thank you guys for dropping on and listening. Thank you for sending us questions in our stories. And for questions on here in the live, thank you to all of you who share the podcast so it helps grow and helps grow Culture Nutra and the Cultivating Strength Training Row platform uh, program that we have. I appreciate all that so much. You guys are wonderful. And we will see you next week. Bye.